Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. It's been a tumultuous few days in British politics, with the resignation of Prime Minister Theresa May coming in tandem with a humiliating defeat for the Conservative Party in EU elections. Across the continent, the centre has just about held in the face of an anticipated popular surge. But nevertheless, the strong performance of Eurosceptic or Eurocritical parties in member states such as Italy, France, Hungary and Poland gives rise to plenty of questions about the future direction of the European Union. I'll be discussing some of those questions shortly with our Europe editor, Patrick Smith. But we're starting a little closer to home and to that astonishing result in Britain in which the Brexit party on one side of the Brexit divide and the pro-Remain Liberal Democrats on the other were the big winners. Dennis Staunton, our London editor, joins me now from there. Dennis, we knew this was going to be a good election for the Brexit party and a bad one for the Conservatives and Labour. So were there any surprises in the end? What stood out for you? I think probably, as you say, the Brexit party were expected to do well, and they did. They got about a third of the vote, and they uh, they came in with uh, five more seats than UKIP won in 2014, when Nigel Farage was the leader of UKIP. So they came in with about 29 seats, I think. And so everybody expected them to do well. There was no real surprise there. And it was also expected that the Conservatives would fall into single digits. They weren't really campaigning in these elections. And some of the sting was taken out of that. By Sunday night, because of the fact that Theresa May resigned last Friday, so uh, so that kind of neutralised the effect for them. So a lot of the anguish was on the other side, where uh, the uh, where Labour lost votes both to the Liberal Democrats and to the Greens in the south of the country, and then to a much lesser extent to uh, the Brexit party in the north and the Midlands. They also lost, they did extremely badly Labour in uh, in Scotland. And that appears to have been because the SNP, the Scottish National Party, ran a campaign very much about the European Union, saying this is a vote about remaining in the European Union, lend us your vote. And they were able to say that the Labour Party had an ambiguous and an unclear policy about what they wanted to do about Brexit. And that seems to be what Labour paid the price for. And indeed, Dennis, many people saw this election as a referendum on, on Brexit. And if you look at it in that light, who actually won? Nobody. So they. Uh, so you had really the the, the two blocks of uh, of parties that wanted either a hard Brexit, say, on the one hand, so that would have been uh, the Brexit Party and UKIP, who were both campaigning to, uh, to, to leave without a deal. And they got about 35% of the vote. And on the other side, those parties that uh, are looking for a second referendum, including the Liberal Democrats and Change UK and the Greens, they got about the same. And so, uh, so, so it was a kind of a dead heat in that respect. And then, of course, the question is, how do you interpret the, people, the votes of the people People who voted for Labour, where they remain votes, where they leave votes, where they whatever votes. And likewise, Conservative voters, they were presumably voting Conservative. Uh, they wanted to leave, but maybe they wanted to leave with uh, with a deal. So it's, it's, it's a little difficult to interpret those votes in the middle. But certainly it looked as if the thing was, you know, certainly Britain was just as divided as ever about Brexit. I couldn't help noticing, Dennis, the contrast between the outcome in Greece and the outcome in the UK in in this respect. In Greece, the governing Syriza party was speeding into second place. 
23% of the vote and that was enough to force the Prime Minister um, or persuade the Prime Minister anyway, Tsipras, to, to call a snap election. And in the UK, the governing party finished in fifth place with less than 10% of the vote. Does that kind of result not call into question the Conservatives' mandate to govern? Well, I suppose the Prime Minister did actually go. Uh, she went uh, before the election, but certainly she, uh, Theresa May, realised that she couldn't carry on governing. Uh, certainly there's no question but that this is a government that can't get anything done. I mean, if you look back at the last couple of months, apart from Brexit, where they uh, managed to get nothing done, an awful lot of the, uh, the of, of the debates in Parliament appeared to be about animals. So there was a legislation about banning animal acts and circuses. And there were only 19 animals performing in circuses at the time. And now there's actually one of them has died. So there's only 18 of them. And so uh, obviously this is something I, mean, I, I would, would certainly be a supporter of the legislation. But it's not perhaps you know, the sign of a government that's really at the, you know, the top of its game and legislating, you know, at a, at a very um, uh, energetic pace. And so it is a government that isn't really functioning. But at the same time, they're afraid to have a general election because they think they would lose it. And they think that uh, the idea of handing the keys of Downing Street to Jeremy Corbyn is horrifying for Conservatives. And then it's also not clear if you did have a general election, particularly if the Brexit party was still a force, exactly what kind of an outcome would you get? Would you be able to get, uh, would that general election produce a government that was able to govern any better than this one is? It's, you know, it's hard to say, but certainly you're right. You know, the idea that the governing party should fall into fifth place and into single digits and carry on is an extraordinary thing. But it, we, we are living in very, very extraordinary times here. Well, of course, there will be a new prime minister in place soon, as, as you mentioned. What impact do you think the result will have on the Conservative Party leadership race? Well, the, the the good performance of the Brexit Party is good news for Boris Johnson and probably for other candidates like Dominic Raab, who uh, are saying that Britain must leave the European Union on October the 31st, one way or another. Uh, that on the face of it would, would, would appear to be the case. Boris Johnson would also have another argument in his favour where he would say that, you know, to, to defeat a populist like uh, Nigel Farage, you need another, another populist, and that's Boris Johnson. And so a lot of uh, Conservative MPs who don't particularly like uh, Johnson, but, uh, you know, and a, a few months ago wouldn't even think about voting for him, are now thinking that maybe he represents their best hope of holding on to their seats. And although they're probably not likely to win an election in any circumstances, they think in a way he's a throw of the dice, that maybe he'll be able to do it. And he can say, you know, if I, I'll approach Brexit in a much more straightforward, a, a harder Brexit sort of approach, and also I'll cheer everybody up. And so that he thinks that he would be able to uh, to, to minimise the impact of the Brexit party. So it's probably uh, done him some good. What's happened, though, in the race over the last little while, there are now 11 candidates, as I speak to you now, there may be 12 by the time we finish speaking, but there are now 11. And uh, and what you have effectively is two lanes. So on one side, you've got these hard Brexiteers, people like Dominic Raab, Boris Johnson, Andrea Leadsom, uh, who want to pursue uh, the hardest possible Brexit. And they just say, we've just got to get out. If we can get a deal, uh, that's great. But if we can't get a deal that's acceptable to us, then we're going to leave without a deal. And they also would argue that it's better to go to the Europeans saying, we're ready to leave with a deal, without a deal, because then that strengthens your hand. On the other side, you've got 
uh, cabinet ministers like the Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt, the Home Secretary Sajid Javid, uh, the International Development Secretary Rory Stewart, the Environment Secretary Michael Gove, and various others, uh, current and former ministers. And they are arguing that a number of them over the last few days have argued that uh, you know you, that Conservative MPs should be very careful about voting for any leader who's promising to leave without a deal because they say Parliament just won't stand for that. And that actually, if you're voting for a no-deal Brexit, you're voting for a, vo- a motion of no confidence in the government. And some Conservatives are so horrified at the thought of a no-deal Brexit that they could cross the floor, vote with the opposition and trigger a general election, which most Conservatives think they're almost uh, des- they're definitely going to lose, particularly if Brexit hasn't happened. And in, in, in that context, Dennis, indeed, it was interesting to hear Jeremy Hunt, you mentioned him there, the Foreign Secretary, make the case on BBC Radio this morning against a no-deal Brexit and kind of warn about the potentially catastrophic consequences for the Conservative Party and the country in general should a new Prime Minister go down that path. I just think we have to be careful about saying that we will definitely leave the EU on a fixed date, deal or no deal, because the risk of that is that Parliament would then try and stop a no-deal Brexit, which they've already done successfully before, and then you would be pushed into a general election. And uh, I think if that happened, the Conservative Party would be annihilated because we went into the last election promising to deliver Brexit. We won't have delivered it by this election if it happened. And so I think the crucial thing is to find a way to get a deal uh, as soon as we can uh, so that we can leave smoothly. And, and that's what uh, we need to be thinking about. So, Dennis, just listening to those comments from Jeremy Hunt, um, do, do you think that's an argument that will persuade enough MPs to support a candidate like him, if you like, to challenge uh, a, a hard Brexiteer like Boris Johnson or Dominic Raab? I think possibly. Uh, you, you must remember this is a two-stage process and it's actually a very long campaign so that the nominations close on Monday the 10th of June. So uh, it, you know, it's quite a bit away uh, still. And then after that, uh, probably a, a couple of days after that, they will have a series of ballots, uh, secret ballots by MPs where they'll whittle the candidate down until they have only two of them. And so they'll have ballots every Tuesday and Thursday until such time as they get that, get it down to two. And that could be maybe two weeks. Now, the thing is, they are secret ballots. And, uh, you know, the uh, Conservative Party, uh, Parliamentary Party, is famously described as the most sophisticated electorate in the world, by which they mean the most duplicitous. And so, there, you know, there are the stories of a legion of people promising their vote to numerous candidates. And there used to be a tradition in the old days, after the end of every Conservative leadership contest, where the campaign managers would meet over a bottle of wine and they would compare their lists so they would see who had actually promised their vote to how many people. But the thing is that, uh, you know, in the secrecy of this uh, ballot, it could be that many MPs would think, well, my priority is not to have a general election. And so regardless of what I think about Brexit, maybe it's a bit too risky to go for one of these uh, hard Brexiteers. Having said that, Boris Johnson is so popular among the membership that uh, as of now, it would still be a surprise to see him not getting on the ballot as one of the final two. And uh, and what happens after they've chosen to is that they go before the uh, the broader membership, a period probably of four weeks of campaigning and then a postal vote. So the whole thing goes on until the end of July. So I think it's unlikely that Boris Johnson won't get onto the ballot unless 
something happens. And it's still always possible that his campaign can implode for one reason or another, for all kinds of unexpected reasons. He's, a, he's an unpredictable person. And, uh, and so if that were to happen, then you might uh, expect that, uh, that the Brexiteer, the hard Brexiteer wing might be represented by someone like Dominic Raab. And then on the other side, the question is, uh, who do they go for? Uh, the reaction to Jeremy Hunt's interview this morning and to uh, an op-ed he wrote in the Daily Telegraph hasn't been very good because he's somebody who's seen to have flip-flopped quite a lot on Brexit. He was a Remainer who suddenly became a very hardline uh, Brexiteer. And then uh, he's suddenly uh, come out against uh, a no-deal Brexit. And then in the course of the same interview, he outlined this proposal where he said he'd go to Brussels with uh, a new negotiating team, which would include the DUP and the European Research Group. So it would include people uh, who are advocating for a no-deal Brexit. And so the idea that you would go over to Brussels with a team that includes, say, Sammy Wilson and Marc Francois and hope to get a better outcome uh, than Theresa May with Ollie Robbins and various sophisticates managed, I think is, you know, it's a bit of a stretch. So that hasn't gone down terribly well. So the question is who emerges from that other side? Uh, and, uh, and again, it's very unpredictable. Probably the one who looks strongest right now is Michael Gove. Now, Michael Gove uh, is a true uh, believer in Brexit. He was the chairman of the Vote Leave campaign, but he supported Theresa May's deal. And he has, and he stayed in the cabinet. And so he's regarded as something of a traitor by the very, very ideological Brexiteers. But it, it's, he has quite a lot of appeal across the party, and particularly among the younger intake. And so there's a possibility that those people who are not hardline Brexiteers would decide that you, uh, that only somebody who was an actual Brexiteer, only somebody who campaigned to leave in 2016, has any chance of winning the leadership election and that they might go behind him. But again, he's got a bit of a backstory. And so if, for example, you were to end up with Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, that would be the grudge match of all grudge matches because, uh, as you may remember, in 2016, when David Cameron resigned, Boris Johnson was the frontrunner to win and his campaign manager was Michael Gove. Indeed. And the night before the uh, Boris Johnson was going to officially launch his campaign, Michael Gove uh, met some of his friends and said, do you know what? I think this guy is going to be a disaster and I'm going to go for it myself. And he announced that minutes before Boris was due to announce, Boris Johnson went out to make his announcement. And as he got to the end of his speech, he said, I will not be the person who's running. And so uh, so, so this was regarded as you know, uh, a, a particularly uh, odious piece of uh, political treachery. But uh, the, the word is the two of them, that their relationship has somewhat improved since, but it probably couldn't get too, too much worse. So anyway, so that, there is a possibility that you would actually see the two of them up against each other. But it really is so, it's, you know, the, the, the process is so long and so unpredictable that uh, you know, it's very hard to predict where it will all end up. That would be the grudge match of the century, wouldn't it? And it, it, I think, it, as was said at the time, it ended up like one of those Shakespearean tragedies where all the characters were dead uh, with, exactly. kni with knives in their, either in their back or in their chest or something by the end of the play. That was the almost the literally play. the case, actually, because it, cause it actually, you know, um, it was because, uh, yes, uh, he, uh, Sir Johnson was taken out by Gove and then Gove was, uh, in a way, punished for his own treachery. And then it ended up with just two candidates, Andrea Letsom and Theresa May. And then Andrea Letsom did for herself 
herself by giving an interview where she suggested that Theresa May couldn't be a good prime minister because she didn't have any children. And uh, so she didn't have a stake in the future. And so that uh, didn't go down too well. So she withdrew. And uh, and so Theresa May was elected unopposed and the rest uh, unfolded, as you've seen it over the last three years. You're, you're whetting my appetite there, Dennis, for the, the weeks ahead. Um, but Speaking of leadership matters, the, the, the shocking performance of the Labour Party in the EU elections, it finished in third place with about, I think, 14, 15% of the vote. That must pose questions about the continuing leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, or, or does it? I don't think it poses any questions about his leadership. I think it's. I think he's there as long as he wants to remain there. I think it certainly has posed questions about some of the people around him. And so what you've seen in the days since is that a lot of very senior people, including people who would be uh, pretty friendly with uh, with Corbyn, like for example Emily Thornberry, who rep- the Shadow Foreign Secretary, who represents the neighbouring seat in Islington to him, uh, and so she was very quick to say. Uh, it's quite clear that uh, we need to be much clearer that we support a second referendum. And the same, Keir Starmer, the uh, Shadow Brexit Secretary, said the same. And then John McDonnell, who is uh, the closest and oldest political ally that Jeremy Corbyn has. Uh, he went out and he suggested that it was time to change the policy. And you often see him playing the role of going out kind of John the Baptist-like uh, in advance to signal the the fact that uh, Jeremy Corbyn is about to change his policy. And so uh, Corbyn in the last couple of days has been kind of groping towards a change and and, and the latest iteration is that uh, that Labour should support a second referendum, a confirmatory vote on any deal that is agreed. And so that means that even if Labour uh, negotiates a deal, that that should go to a confirmatory referendum. Uh, now, that's not quite enough to satisfy uh, sort of hardcore remainers because they're what they want is actually just to have a referendum saying, let's change our minds about this crazy Brexit idea, you know, regardless of whether there's a deal or not. And uh, and so so this his support for the second referendum is so far predicated on the idea of there being a deal to put to the people for a confirmatory vote. But still, it's certainly, you know, uh, the result of the election, I think, has uh, propelled Labour in this direction. There is a question of process because the normal uh, time and place for big policy changes is at the party conference. And that's when the party uh, adopted the current policy last year in September. And the question is, do they wait until then when you're almost on the verge of of Brexit uh, due to happen at the end of October? Or do they have some, some kind of a special conference to try to change the policy and that's something I think they'll work out over the next few days and weeks. It's, it's remarkable though Dennis though, I think that you, as you say Corbyn himself his, his own position seems to be uh, almost un, untouchable and I saw an argument made by Paul Mason in The Guardian and we know Paul Mason is a kind of a supporter of Corbyn but he said the buck must stop somewhere but he, he, it should stop at all of his advisors should be sacked. Uh, I've never seen an argument made before that the buck must stop sort of at the top but not really with the person at the top but the people who, who, who are advising him. <laughs> Yes, uh, it's a bit like sort of the uh, Tsarist Russia when people used to say if the Tsar knew about this, you know, uh, but his advisors don't tell him anything, you know, that that, that somehow the Tsar himself was uh, absolved of all responsibility for everything that was done in his name. And uh, and Jeremy Corbyn certainly for for some uh, members has that quality. I think his 
uh, you know, his shine has a bit has tarnished to some extent to over the last year or so, partly because of Brexit, because uh, you know, one element of his support, which is say younger people in momentum, uh, the movement momentum, they're very pro-Remain, and a lot of uh, Labour voters and Labour members uh, that you would meet, particularly on the left, would expect uh, express quite a lot of frustration about. The, you know his his failure to lead on Brexit as they see it, and the you know the fact that he's chosen to stay on the fence for you know for for tactical political reasons as they see it, and I think also it is you know it's not good for his brand because his brand is that he's not a regular politician he's a straight talker and he speaks as he finds, and here on Brexit he looks to be just a bit shifty and a bit like any other politician. Dennis, finally a, a quick question about the Brexit party. I say quick because Declan, our producers telling me I've detained you long enough. Um, I'm just wondering what kind of impact you think the Brexit party might have in the European Parliament. They'll have 29 seats, which I think only the CDU, Angela Merkel's CDU, will have as many seats as an individual party. But will they go there, do you think, and make a lot of noise in the chamber the way UKIP have done in the past? Or is there potential there for however long they're in the Parliament for them to link up with other far-right parties or Eurosceptic parties and make some real trouble for the European Union? They might do, although they have... Uh, Farage has always resisted any alliance, say, with uh, Marine Le Pen. Uh, he, you know, he has never wanted to be uh, categorised in that far-right uh, category. And so he... Uh, so I think that, you know, what they... you know, Officially, what they're hoping is that uh, they won't be there for very long. And if Britain leaves uh, on time, either through a no-deal Brexit or, or with a deal at the end of October, then they won't be there for very long. But if they, if they hang around, uh, it is in the nature of the European Parliament and institutions like that that you do uh, find yourself working with other people. And certainly Farage did to some extent. But I do think that they're in such a special category. And also, uh, most of their people are not professional politicians. There are very few of them of their, uh, their newly elected MEPs who have any political experience at all. Obviously, some like Anne Widdicombe, the former Conservative uh, MP, they do. But uh, but quite a lot of them, like, say, for example, Annunciata Rees-Mogg, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's sister, no political experience. Claire Fox uh, had political experience as an activist in the Revolutionary Communist Party, but since then has really been a journalist. Others, there's a soldier there. There is quite a lot of business people. And so uh, so I think they'll have, you know, it'll, it'll take them a little while to settle in. And I think that, you know, that they probably will make plenty of noise. Uh, and he, Nigel Farage, enjoyed a very set piece, uh, you know, events that he would uh, tend to denounce in colourful terms people like Jean-Claude Juncker and Tusk and Barnier and whoever. And I'm sure they'll carry on doing something like that. Dennis, thank you. Thanks again to Dennis Staunton, our London editor. It's to Brussels now for a wider perspective on the European elections and our Europe editor, Patrick Smith, joins me from there. Uh, Paddy, one of the striking things about these elections, I think, was the lack of a coherent picture across member states. In some cases, we've seen a strong performance from the far right, but in, in others, the challenge to the establishment came from the left and from the Green Party in particular. How would you characterise the results overall? Well, I, I think that it, it's better looked at as a decline of the centre. Um, if you look at the, the performance of the EPP party, the European People's Party, and uh, of the the socialists, both parties have declined, losing overall 40 seats um, between them in the um, in the centre ground of the, of the parliament. And uh, you can then see why perhaps uh, it is that uh, there appears to be different messages coming from 
from uh, different countries uh, in terms of support for the, it's not that they're, the Greens are certainly by no means extreme, but that they are reflecting, if you like, non-mainstream uh, voting. What, what particular results, Paddy, would have stood out for you? Would it be, for example, the, the very strong performance of the League Party in Italy? I think that's the, that's the most dramatic of, of all of the results because uh, the, the League Party was behind its uh, coalition partner, the Five Star Movement, in the general election uh, just uh, two years ago. And it has um, passed out the League, the Five Star Movement, quite substantially. Uh, and is now picking up a third of all, all the votes being cast in Italy. It, it represents a, a serious swing by Italian politics to, to the right. Um, and you can see that it's Democratic Party, the, the, the left party in effect in Italy, which groups the old socialists and, and various other elements, even the old communists, is, a, is only polling around 20%, um, which is by far the most right-wing electorate in, in, um, in uh, European politics. We've seen efforts, Paddy, in the past uh, few weeks and before that by the leader of the League Party, Matteo Salvini, who of course is Deputy Prime Minister of Italy, to forge links with other far-right and populist parties across Europe. And I guess if these uh, parties are to be effective in the next European Parliament, they will have to work together to a common agenda and try to build a common platform. Do you think they're capable of doing that? Well, up to eight uh, national leaders of far-right groups joined uh, Salvini in the, the weekend before the elections in in Milan uh, to uh, say that they were going to come together. But the reality is on the ground in the parliament, it's, it'll be much more difficult for them to form united uh, groups. Some of them are actually quite uncomfortable uh, in, in the same group as, as uh, Salvini. Um, and some of them, are, they have different they have different policies on, on issues ranging from public spending to uh, the way uh, you you treat um, immigrants. Um, altogether, the three main uh, group parties uh, of the of the right uh, would probably come out of these elections with about 181 or, or so seats uh, out of a parliament of 750. Now, that's enough to be disruptive, but it's not enough to make fundamental uh, governing decisions. And they certainly won't have a part to play, for example, in, in nominating a Spitzenkandidat to the uh, the leaders. Um, but they, but with that number of votes, they can be very disruptive in their work on committees. They will be entitled to chair a number of, of, of committees and uh, we can expect uh, difficulties there. If they're patient, Paddy, and do work together for the next five years and are shown to work to good effect, could it be that in five years' time, that's when we're really going to see uh, uh, th- th- this populist or far-right you know, surge that people feared in this particular election? I'm not sure that, that, that that's the case. My, my own suspicion is that we are seeing a, a high point in the uh, far-right uh, vote in uh, in Europe, maybe it's it's my natural optimism, uh, but there are signs that they are they, that they are peaking, and uh, I think that if you look, for example, at the National Front, it's the Rassemblement, Rassemblement National in France, and the Alternative for for Deutschland. Um, though they voted, they've polled strongly, they haven't increased their votes uh, in in these elections, and they may be plateauing, um, and and we, we'll see. Now, it's also true that in other places they have increased their support. And we have, for example, a far-right member in the um, Estonian government for the first time. 
and we have uh, the possibility of far-right participation in the Belgian government, um, although I suspect um, that's going to take a long time to form because the, the far-right, the Flemish far-right, did, did extremely well in these elections. What about the Brexit party, Paddy? I asked Dennis a question um, a few moments ago about what impact the Brexit party might have in, in the European Parliament for whatever t- time it's there. Is that a kind of a, a one-off, a unique... It's a party that comes out of the unique circumstances that pertain in Britain. Or do you see the Brexit party perhaps working effectively with Salvini and others? Uh, I think that they will work for the couple of months that they, they are here. And uh, I, I don't see them having a major effect on the, um, uh, the, cru- the crucial decisions that are going to be taken in, in the next, uh, in the first sessions of, of, of the new parliament. Certainly they may affect uh, voting for, for committee positions they won't actually have the power to to uh, pick a new president uh, for the parliament. And um, again, it's a power to disrupt rather than a power to be decisive. Well, and, and again, speaking of the Brexit party, Paddy, what message do you think uh, the powers that be in Brussels and EU leaders will take from the EU election result? Will it cause them to rethink their approach to Brexit in any way? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think... Uh, anybody here was was uh, surprised. They were disappointed, obviously, uh, with the result in Britain, and they were bewildered about what what it is the Tories are going to do to get themselves out of this particular mess. But I don't think it changes things. There's certainly no appetite whatsoever for re- renegotiating the withdrawal agreement, uh, and, and uh, leaders have been quietly making that absolutely plain. They will do so again at the the uh, leaders' dinner, uh, which is happening uh, this evening. Uh, there's no, there's no possibility. It seems to me. Um, I think, I think what um, they are reconciling themselves slowly to is, the, is the fact that no deal is now more and more likely, and that by October, uh, Britain will will leave the union and without a deal. And so preparations for the no deal have to be accelerated. And they're they're well advanced already, but and nobody really wants to to apply them. But they are. Um, uh, that is much more realistic prospect now. Now, Paddy, you mentioned there the EU leaders having dinner in Brussels this evening, Tuesday evening. And of course, um, attention is now turning um, and, and they will be discussing uh, the question of who might replace uh, Donald Tusk as, as president of the European Council. And John, uh, John, John Claude Juncker has commissioned president. Their terms are coming to an end. Um, what's the state of play regarding uh, their potential replacements? It's a bit of a mess. Um, the, the, these top jobs, including uh, a couple of others to the high representative for foreign policy and the uh, head of the European Bank, are all regarded as a package. And um, so the leaders will try and juggle uh, in these appointments uh, between the main political parties, which are represented at the, at the council, as well as in the parliament, uh, between regions uh, you can't have the Germans, for example, taking all the positions. You will see an attempt to get gender balance. Um, although, again, that's going to be very difficult because um, there aren't that many women candidates out there. Uh, and what we're going to see tonight for the first time, though, is a gentle um, put down of the, of the parliament, uh, which believes that it has the right to nominate uh, the next president of the commission uh, through what is called the Spitzen candidate system, whereby the political parties have nominated people ahead of the European elections and the, the party with the largest number of votes claims that the, the, it, it has a mandate 
from the parliament to have its person. And the Spitzen um, candidate party is essentially the the lead candidate lead, by, by each political grouping. That, that's, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. not necessarily even standing in the European elections, but the parties have put them forward on their on their banners as as our top candidate. So, the, for example, uh, Manfred Weber is the uh, Spitzen candidate of the European People's Party, the Gales uh, group, and uh, tonight. Uh, the parliament will be putting forward his name to the leaders. Um, the leaders say, well, actually, hold on a sec, lads. I know you want to do this, and I know you, you're going to have a chance to approve whoever we choose. But at the end of the day, the decision is an autonomous decision of the leaders, and we're not going to be bounced into uh, accepting Manfred Weber as, as the, the candidate. So it's going to be a bit of a past struggle between the parliament and the leaders, which which kicks off really tonight. Uh, after Weber's pushed gently to one side, then there's a whole rake of possible people, including um, Michel Barnier, the chief EU negotiator on, on, on Brexit, uh, who it is said, and the Irish Times is reporting today, is, is Ireland's favourite choice and will be supported by the, um, the government here if indeed Weber doesn't get the, the nod. Um, there are others, Timmermans, uh, who is Franz Timmermans, who's a Dutch uh, commissioner for, for uh, he's a vice president of the commission, uh, Margaret Vestager, who's a, a woman and a Danish uh, commissioner for competition. Uh, their names are in the hat. Uh, quietly, his name isn't in the hat yet, but I believe it's a serious possibility. The um, uh, Belgian Prime Minister Charles Michel um, may be a candidate. The leaders would quite like it to become pr practice that these two, at least of these top jobs, would go to former prime ministers. So Michel has, has the advantage of being at the table with them at the moment and being a prime minister, um, although not for much longer in, in, in Belgium. So there's quite a few names out there, um, and and I must say you'd be a brave man to put money on any particular one. You mentioned gender balance there, Paddy, and I think it's the case that no woman has ever held uh, one of the two uh, top positions. Um, there's a woman in Germany who um, will be retiring soon from, from her current position. Um, has her name been mentioned at all in, in the context of these jobs? Well, it's been mentioned repeatedly, but she's also issued firm, very firm denials. Uh, she's she wants to retire. She wants to go and and walk in the mountains with her husband. And and uh, uh, she has said this again and again. The, the, but the possibility is that uh, pressure will come on her, uh, and particularly for the job of EU Council President, the job that Donald Tusk is doing at the moment. Um, the job is effectively the shop steward of of the leaders and. Um, they would, they she has a lot of respect, and they would like it very much if she would take um, the job because it would mean the council really taking uh, much tighter control of the parliament, the, of the commission's agenda, and of the European Union's agenda uh, by having somebody uh, like uh, Merkel in, in that in that job, and of course it would solve the the gender uh, problem. And just finally, Paddy, might these changes, whoever uh, fills these jobs eventually, um, might they bring any change to the EU's position on Brexit? I mean, could we see a new British Prime Minister, a new Council and Commission presidents meeting in the autumn and possibly hammering out a new deal? I don't think so. I think that the leaders are not inclined uh, to, to change their, their positions. As I said earlier, in, in relation to the withdrawal agreement, 
Um, I think what we will probably see um, from today on is the leaders beginning to make much more clear to the British that uh, October is not a, a, a day on which they will they will uh, consider another extension. October is a final day, and um, October thirty first. Yeah, October thirty first is 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 a day when when uh, Britain will either have to have decided to leave or decided to stay. There won't be another extension. Um, so I, I think it's very unlikely uh, there'll be any any shift. And I, one of the things I heard this morning was Jeremy Hunt in, in, in Britain talking about how they, they, he was going to come over if he was elected leader of, of uh, the Tory party. And he was going to renegotiate withdrawal agreement, uh, including uh, changes to the backstop and a whole, whole rake of other things. This is, this is uh, my eye. This is absolutely un, un, unrealistic. And diplomats here will be saying very firmly uh, to the British quietly, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and diplomats will be saying here quite quietly, but firmly to the British, no way. Well, you'll be pleased to know, Paddy, that Dennis on before you made the very same point about Jeremy Hunt's prospects in, in that regard. Paddy, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.